Two small villages in Picardy marked some of the heaviest fighting in this sector of the Somme in July of 1916. What do we find when we walk the ground between La Boiselle and Contalmaison? It's spring on the old front line. The crops are beginning to emerge from winter's fields. The chiff-chaff has returned to Thiepval Wood. I heard him there just a few weeks ago. And the skies above the vast open landscapes will soon be full not just of the song of the skylark, but the black shapes of darting swifts and swallows as they return from their winter break. The landscape of the Great War changes once more as it does each year, and as we return now in greater numbers than the past two years, we see it afresh somehow. The connection between nature, the landscape and the history of the Great War is one that is not lost, I think, on visitors that return to those battlefields on a regular basis and was not lost on the men who were there more than a hundred years ago. And that connection, that symmetry between what they saw from their muddy trenches as migratory birds passed over the sky and through the midst of shells above them is something that has never been lost on me. This is season four of the Old Frontline podcast. It's hard to believe that we're now in our third year of the Old Frontline. We recently passed more than half a million downloads. It's really quite incredible and I can't thank you enough for listening, downloading, supporting the podcast by listening to it or joining us as a Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee supporter and I can't thank you enough either for all the kind comments that you make on social media whether that's on our Twitter page or on our Facebook page. Producing the podcast has been a true labour of love for me. In these past two years we've all felt at some distance from the battlefields of the Great War, and this has been a way, I think, for us all to somehow be back there once more. Certainly for me, in making these podcasts, I could be back there once more when I couldn't be there in person. We can return now, but there's still a place for these podcasts, and I think, and they still will continue. I've been laid low by COVID for the last few weeks, having escaped it for nearly two years, just as we've all been told it's over, it's got me. And it's laid me low and, and it's made me tired in a way that I haven't felt in many, many years. But more importantly, it's put me behind with this podcast. So this episode will go out towards the end of April and then for a little while the podcast will be every other week until I'm back on track and we can return to a weekly or as close as weekly as we can get basis as we move forward towards the summer. There's lots to come in season four. There's more battlefields in a day, including places like Arras and Verdun and Chemin de Dame and locations that perhaps we don't visit so much on a regular basis compared to those big British battlefields of the First World War. There'll be more adjutant's notebooks with the minutiae of the Great War and different aspects from trench mortars to infantry battalions and to how the artillery was organised. And there'll be, like in this episode, walks across the battlefields of the Great War. Our supporters' evenings will continue and this month in April, although there's not been many podcast episodes, we will be having a supporters' meet-up via Zoom 
and hearing about the story of a particular French regiment in the Great War and the research into that. And we've got more of those plans as we move forward each month. I'm hoping that as I spend more regular periods out on the battlefields along the Western Front, I should see some of you. And please come up and say hello if you see me out and about. It'd be great to meet some of you who listen to the podcast. And I'm still looking towards having a, a podcast meet up somewhere on the battlefields this year, whether that's via an organised tour or whether we meet up together somewhere along the old front line and have a walk. And I'll keep you all informed as more definitive plans for that are made. But for now, as we begin season four, we head, as always, back to familiar ground, the Somme battlefields in northern France. So let's strap on our virtual boots, pick up our virtual pack and head out to those dusty lanes of Picardy. So where are we? We're beginning this walk in the village of La Boisselle, just south of the main albert Bapaume road that cuts right through the middle of the Somme battlefields. At the beginning of the Battle of the Somme, the village of La Boisselle was behind the German lines. It had been taken by German troops in the early phase of the war, and they'd built their defences around it. There'd been some fighting close to the village itself and the neighbouring village of Overlers involving French and German troops in 1914, and then the line had gone static. This became a French sector, with French troops facing the Germans here until the summer of 1915, when the first British troops arrived here, the men from the 51st Highland Division. The Jocks had moved down from northern France to be one of the first British formations that took over the trenches in this sector of the Somme, and when they got here, many of the trenches had French names, which they couldn't pronounce, so they renamed them. So the nearby Loch Nagar mine crater, a subject of a podcast for another day, was named after Loch Nagar Trench, one of the trenches that they named during that summer of 1915 period. And then, as the British Army's line expanded on the Somme, from the summer of 1915 into the following spring of 1916, more and more units passed through here. And just on the outskirts of the village, it was an area of tunnelling, first the French and the Germans, and then the British tunnelling companies of the Royal Engineers based in Albert came up and worked underground blowing small-scale charges in what was known as the Glory Hole on the outskirts of the village. And in the lead-up to the Battle of the Somme, two great mines were prepared here, the Loch Nagar mine and the Wysat mine, both of which were blown on the 1st of July 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme. On that day, men from the 34th Division, who we'll talk about later on in the walk, were meant to attack the village of La Boisselle, advance through it, advance close to the albert Bapome Road, go over the Pozieres Ridge, other units would pass through them, Back home by nightfall and who knows where beyond that in the weeks that followed. That never happened. On the first day of the Battle of the Somme, the 34th Division attacking from the northern area of the village to the western area of the village, trying to advance up the two valleys that were here, Sausage Valley to the south and Mash Valley to the north, suffered tremendous casualties and all they had to show for it was a tiny pocket of ground around the Loch Nagar crater which gave the units that supported them that day a foothold to continue with the advance. Battalions of the 19th Western Division then moved in 
and they continued with the attack in this area, gradually fighting their way through the rubble of La Boisselle village. It was almost a case of brick by brick, shattered building by shattered building, cellar by cellar, because the Germans implemented the defence of this village, incorporating a lot of the cellars which they connected up into that defence. By the 7th of July, the village of La Boisselle was in British hands, and a new front line ran across from the far side of what was left of the village towards a position known as Shelter Wood, and the battle continued to the next village of Contal Maison, which we'll head to in this walk. We begin outside the modern church, or the rebuilt church in La Boisselle. The whole village was destroyed, not just in the 1916 battles, but in the fighting that returned here in March and then August of 1918, when the German advance swept through here and the final British advance pushed the Germans back. The village of La Boisselle was rebuilt in the early 1920s. The bulk of the buildings around us now date from that period, from the summer of 1922 through to the next summer, when in most of these Somme villages, that's when the serious rebuilding work took place. In front of the church here is a memorial, a divisional memorial, to the men of the 19th Western Division. On it is their divisional symbol, a butterfly. The exact origins of that symbol, which is quite an unusual symbol for a martial division of troops set to fight the enemy on the battlefield, is lost in the mists of time. I read one somewhat sarcastic account that implied that the divisional commander spent more of his time chasing rare butterflies across northern France than the enemy, but I suspect that's a little bit of estaminet stories of some old soldiers with a bit of beer inside them. But the 19th Western Division was a division of Kitchener's army, formed, as the title says, from units of the Western Command area. The division was initially concentrated in the area around Bulford, and the infantry that formed part of the division around places like Tidworth, Luggershaw and Greatly. It went into billets during the winter of 1914-15 in places like Andover, Basingstoke, Western Supermare, and then in the spring of 1915 all of the division came together in the area close to Tidworth, and after being inspected by the King, it departed for the Western Front for France in July of 1915. Being a Western Commands Area Division, its regiments, the battalions of different regiments that form part of it, were essentially from the western part of Great Britain. So battalions of regiments like the King's Own Royal Lancaster Regiment, the East Lancashire Regiment, the South Lancashire Regiment, the Law North Lanx, the Royal Warwickshire Regiment, the Gloucesters, the Worcesters and the North Staffordshires all form part of this division. You can find their complete order of battle on sites like Chris Baker's The Long, Long Trail, for example, and we'll put a link to that on the podcast website. We've spoken before on the podcast about the link between a division's history, a published history, an old comrades association, and the building of a divisional memorial. And yet again, with the building of this memorial to the 19th Western Division, this is the case. There is a divisional history. In fact, there were two. There was a summary version of the division's history published, and then a full version, which has now been republished by Naval and Military Press, and there was a very good old comrades association. So they got together and constructed two divisional memorials, one to the division's first major engagement here on the Somme, the one 
We're standing in front of here at La Boiselle Church and then went up on the Messines Ridge for the battle that they fought there in June of 1917. And as a division, the divisional history records that the fight here at La Boiselle was very much a soldier's battle. There were three Victoria Crosses awarded, all to infantry soldiers, one of whom was Adrian Carton de Wiat, who commanded the Battalion of the Gloucestershire Regiment that fought through here, and he was awarded the Victoria Cross for his bravery after the loss of three fellow commanding officers. He took command of the troops on that part of the battlefield and frequently was out there exposing himself to enemy fire in full view of the enemy, directing the course of the battle. Carton de Weir is one of those amazing characters of the Great War, wounded something like ten times, he lost an eye, he lost an arm, and he rose from the rank of trooper in the Imperial Yeomanry in 1900 through to Brigadier General commanding an infantry brigade by the time of the Battle of Arras in 1917, and my Old veteran pal George Butler, a story I've told on this podcast before, met him in no man's land on the 9th of the 9th of April 1917 when George Butler was there with his machine gun position out in front of the sunken lane at Fampu and in the darkness a group of men approached their shell hole, they were ready to shoot them and realised that they had Tommy helmets on and not German Stahlhelms and this group of soldiers, officers, dropped down into their shell hole and one of them was Adrian Carton de Wiat, then Brigadier General Carton de Wiat. And I think he is one of those many characters who rose to senior rank in the Great War who rather defies this myth of chateau generals. There is a brigade commander. He could have been in a chateau somewhere close to Arras directing the course of his brigade's advance on the 9th of April 1917, but there he was in a shell hole in the middle of no man's land in the darkness right out on the battlefield. Now, he survived the war. He went on to command in World War II, was captured in the Second World War, and ended up in a prisoner of war camp with Philip Neem, VC, and Brigadier James Hargest, a New Zealander, who had fought at Gallipoli and in all the battles on the Western Front. And I often wonder, with the three of them sitting over a table uh, drinking some Erzatz coffee, what kind of conversations must they have had thinking back to the previous war, let alone their experiences in that war? But here at La Boiselle, Carton de Weert was awarded his Victoria Cross as a Lieutenant Colonel, Battalion Commander, and many other awards were issued as well for bravery to the men of this division in the fighting that took place here. Their casualties in the fighting for La Boiselle numbered just over 3,500 men killed, wounded and missing. So you can see why they were keen to commemorate their part in this sacrifice. We'll leave the area in front of the church now and return to the main road in the village and walk in the direction of Contau Maison. And just on the edge of the village, there's a little grass path that goes off to the left near where the old water tower stood. And that takes you across the fields to our next memorial, to the 34th Division. So in one village, we have two divisional memorials, both divisions connected to the history of the fighting here. The first one that we've seen is the later fighting, the post-1st of July fighting, with the capture of the village. And this one, to the 34th Division, tucked away here, is to the initial assault on the village by the men of this division. This was a division comprised of one brigade that had the 11th Suffolks in it, the Cambridgeshire Battalion, the 10th Lincolns, the Grimsby Chums, and the 15th and 16th Royal Scots recruited in Edinburgh. And then two brigades of battalions of Northumberland Fusiliers, 
four battalions of men recruited in Tyneside from the Scottish community, so they were the Tyneside Scottish, and four battalions of Northumberland Fusiliers recruited in Tyneside from the Irish community, and they were the Tyneside Irish. So the division very heavily dominated by those eight battalions of Northumberland Fusiliers, and the Pioneer Battalion was a Northumberland Fusilier Battalion as well. They were also a division of Kitchener's Army, and we'll put their order of battle a link to the Long Long Trail website onto the podcast website for you to have a look at. And again, there is this connection between the construction of a divisional memorial, the publication of a divisional history, of which there's a very good one for this division, and a strong old comrades association that published their own journal called Checkers. Because when you look at this memorial, you'll see the symbol of this division is not a butterfly as it was from the 19th division, it's a checkerboard. And that old comrades link through the Checkers magazine is something that continued way beyond the First World War. And there were individual units, old comrades associations as well. I have a photograph album of the old comrades association of the 11th Suffolk's returning to the battlefields in the 1920s and then for the 20th anniversary of the Somme on the 1st of July 1936. And the image that I've used as the main image for this podcast episode on the website is one of the images that's in that album showing veterans of the 11th Suffolk's in front of the 34th Division Memorial. Again, this is not a unique memorial to the division. It's one of several. There's another one up at Ypres near to Langemark Cemetery that commemorates the engineers and the artillery of the division close to a German bunker of a similar kind of design, not with a bronze figure on the top. And then there's one on the Lease battlefields of 1918 where the division was in action there during that German offensive across Flanders. But this one commemorates their first action of the Great War, a division raised in 1914 and 15 but never got across to France until early 1916. So it had been in the trenches up in northern France and then down on the Somme for about six months before the battle. On the first day of the Somme, that brigade with the Suffolks and the Lynx and the Royal Scots was meant to advance through Sausage Valley towards Contour Maison. And then the Northumberland Fusilier battalions would leapfrog through them, continue with the advance. Some of the Tynesiders were meant to get to the Pozieres Ridge close to the village of Pozieres on the 1st of July. None of that would happen because... As they emerged from their trenches, the initial assault by the Suffolks and the Lincolns and the Royal Scots, some of those men did get through. Some of the Royal Scots got as far as Contour Maison, and there is a battalion memorial there to them. But the Northumberland Fusiliers, and there are some official photographs taken on the 1st of July on the two hills close to Albert where they began the bulk of their advance, the Tara and Usna hills, where you can see lines of men with their rifles slung their bayonets fixed, glinting in the morning sunshine as they walk down through the grass towards the valley ahead of them, of Oka Valley, to make their assault on La Boiselle. The German machine guns and the German artillery then began to play and gradually those assaults melted away under that fire. And by the close of the day's operations, the 34th Division had suffered over 6,500 casualties here, killed, wounded and missing in a single day. Now, if you think that on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, the British Army lost 57,000 casualties, 6,500 of those, more than 10%, were lost here in one division. And in many battalions, the whole command structure from the battalion commander, the lieutenant colonel commanding it, down to the second in command, all four company commanders were all killed, wounded or were missing. 
The losses to the units in this division were truly, truly devastating, and Major General Ingerville Williams, Inky Bill as his men called him, would have received the indication that these catastrophic casualties had been suffered by the men in his in his units. He would have received that at his headquarters on the night of the 1st of July and in the days that followed. And it must have destroyed him, really, to think that his proud division had been destroyed in a terrible way that had resulted in almost no success whatsoever. But the division remained on the Somme front. It was rebuilt with reinforcements from different battalions and Major General Ingerville Williams would himself become a Somme casualty. When they were in action near to Mamet's Wood, he went down to a sunken lane called the Queen's Nuller, close to the village of Mamet's, was observing from the bank when his staff driver called to him to come down and the Germans had spotted him, a shell came down and he was mortally wounded, dying of his wounds at Wailoi Ballon and is buried in Wailoi Ballon Communal Cemetery Extension. So the Somme claims so many men from this 34th Division, including their divisional commander, one of the most senior British officers to die on the Somme in 1916. On this edge of the village, there's good views across the fields here, up towards Poziers, towards the objectives that the division should have taken on that first day of the Battle of the Somme. We can see down towards Overlers and the ground dropping away into Mash Valley. But we'll return via the footpath down to the road, continue in the direction of Contal Maze on the road bends. There's a little track fork that goes off to the left, which is quite an interesting little track to walk across the fields to get a view across the ground between La Boiselle and uh, Pozieres. But we're going to stay on the road, and that'll take us to another grass path that goes across the fields to our right, down towards the military cemetery. We can see in the dip below us, and that'll be our next stop. We're walking down a grass path now towards the cemetery and we're in a discernible valley. This is Sausage Valley, so named because over to our left, towards the village of Contal-Maison, there was a German artillery observation balloon, a sausage-shaped observation balloon that would pop up and observe the British positions around La Boiselle and Becor Wood. And because of that, the valley was known as Sausage Valley and... If you have a sausage valley, you have to have a mash valley as well. And the mash valley was that other valley on the other side of La Boiselle towards Overlers. Where the cemetery ahead of us now sits, following the advance here in July 1916, this was a route up to the trenches. The road that we've just come off was used continuously during the battle for units to march up to the front and come back to rest beyond Albert. And a light railway ran through this valley, connecting up some of the positions and was used to move up supplies and evacuate wounded, probably in some cases. But it was part of the arterial route of supplies of food, ammunition, equipment. And along such arterial routes, there were positions where that equipment was gathered. These were the so-called dumps. And that's how the name of this cemetery Gordon Dump Cemetery came about. Now, during the war, it was often referred to as Gordon's Dump and may well have actually been named after a particular individual, perhaps a Royal Engineer or Army Service Corps officer that was in charge of this particular dump of supplies and equipment. 
or it could have been that a battalion of the Gordon Highlanders had used this as a dump for their equipment when they'd been in the line close by. That's been lost in the myths of time. But that's what a dump is, and there are a few cemeteries named after such dumps. Not far away from here is Thistle Dump Cemetery, close to the battlefield at High Wood. And that was a position where the 9th Scottish Division, whose flash was a, a Scottish thistle, had their dump of supplies and equipment during the fighting there for the area around Longerval and Delville Wood. As we come into the current entrance of the cemetery, the original one, when we look at the cemetery plan, was on the far side of the cemetery from where we are now, because in the interwar period, and right up probably until the nearly the 1960s, the main route into this cemetery was from a little track that came out of La Boiselle, and then you walked up a path along Sausage Valley to come into what is now, as I say, the far side of the cemetery. For whatever reason, that access route was changed, and this has been the one that, certainly as long as I've been visiting this area, something like 40 years now, this has been the route into the cemetery. Plot 1 of Gordon Dump Cemetery was made by fighting units after the fighting moved forward from here in that summer of 1916. The dead from the first 10 or so days of the Battle of the Somme were laid to rest in this plot. The 4th Battalion of the Middlesex Regiment buried some of their dead here, for example, who were killed on the 1st of July 1916, about a week later, and some of the men doing the burial came under shell fire and were themselves killed and buried with the men that they were laying to rest. And as I say, at that time the cemetery was called Gordon Cemetery or Gordon's Dump Cemetery or even Sausage Valley Cemetery. So it had quite a few different names, but Gordon Dump became its permanent name when the cemetery was established after the war. During the 1916 operations, the cemetery was used right up until September of that year, and then there were 95 graves here, mainly Australians, because this was the route of access to the trenches for Australian units, particularly during the late autumn into the winter of 1916-17. And there's lots of photographs of Australian units marching along the road that we've just come off. A little bit further up, there's a sunken section at Casualty Corner, and there's some famous photographs of Australians marching to and from the trenches in that area so the dead being brought back from the front line area would be buried here because up in the front line if soldiers were buried in improvised graves on the battlefield the men knew because of the amount of shell fire that was dropping there that there was a very high chance that those graves would be lost and so valued comrades admired officers were brought back here for burial during that period and that's true of a number of cemeteries in this area so 95 graves here originally, and then the cemetery post-war was selected as a site to make a permanent burial ground, and then graves were moved in from the surrounding battlefields, and it became a concentration cemetery for this area of the Somme. And then 1,543 graves were moved in, the majority of them men killed in the July 1916 fighting. So in total, there is now 1,546 British graves, 92 Australian, and most of those from that original burial plot from 1916, two Canadians and one Indian army soldier. Of the total, some 1,052 are unidentified, and there are 33 special memorials. The original cemetery register for Gordon Dump records that 
a memorial to the 10th Battalion of the Lancashire Fusiliers once stood in the cemetery. This was described as a, a wooden cross and it commemorated an action here on the 7th of July 1916 when the battalion went into action in an attack on Quadrangle Support Trench. The bombardment that had been launched to assist their attack proved ineffective and the battalion lost over 400 men in this action and the cross was placed to mark that sacrifice. Now the cross was later removed and the battalion memorial was not replaced by a permanent monument, certainly not here. I found evidence that there is a memorial to the battalion in a church in Bury in Lancashire. Bury was the depot of the Lancashire Fusiliers, so that's perhaps not surprising. But where the original cross went to, who knows? And if any listeners to the podcast know the fate of that cross, I'd love to know the answer to that one. Battalion memorials, permanent battalion memorials, were pretty rare on the battlefields of the Western Front. But we will see one of those later on in the walk, and we'll discuss that then. When I walk round this cemetery, it is dominated by the July 1916 period, with a lot of casualties from the first day of the Battle of the Somme. I've always had a particular interest in the 9th Battalion King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry as I have a a photograph of the officers of that battalion taken before the attack on the 1st of July and many of them in that photograph were killed or wounded that day. The bulk of the dead are buried at Norfolk Cemetery at Beckall but some of them are in here as well and I did a previous podcast episode looking at that battalion but their sister battalion, the 10th King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry They have many of their officers here. In fact, there are more, I think, of their officers here than the 9th Battalion men. And it overlooks the ground of which they were advancing from the edge of Beckel Ward up towards the ground between Freecourt and Contal Maison. And in many respects, there are parts of the cemetery that have a very Yorkshire feel to them with lots of graves of King's Own Yorkshire Line infantrymen, but also men from the Yorkshire Regiment, the Green Howards. There were several battalions of the Green Howards in action here, during that summer of 1916 period and one of the graves that many people come to visit here is that of 2nd Lieutenant Donald Simpson Bell. He was killed with the 9th Battalion of the Yorkshire Regiment on the 10th of July 1916 in the attack on Contal Maison. He'd been awarded a Victoria Cross for his bravery in the earlier fighting at the nearby Horseshoe Trench action. He was the battalion bombing officer so he was in command of the bombers section So this was a group of men who were issued with grenades and it was their task to use those grenades to take on enemy positions to assist in an attack by bombing their way through different trenches to open those trenches up to enable the rest of the infantry to advance or to take on particular strong points. And in things like trench raids they would be used to take out dugouts or command centres and then help the infantry who were assisting in that raid to grab a prisoner. But their task as specialists, bombers, was to use those bombs. The phrase bomb is the one that is used for grenades. And Donald Simpson Bell and his bombers would have gone through a lot of different types of grenades since the formation of their battalion and their crossing to France in 1915. From the impromptu jam tin grenades made out of those tins of plum and apple jam with a wick fuse on the top, through to the various types of early grenades that were used in 1915, And by the time of the Somme, they would have had the number five grenade or the Mills hand grenade that was the common grenade then used by bombing sections like this. And in the attack on Horseshoe Trench, Bell led his bombers in an assault on a German machine gun position, which they knocked out, enabling the advance to continue. And it's for that that he was awarded 
the Victoria Cross. Bell was a, a keen sportsman. He was a professional footballer before the war. He played for Bradford, but he was also a school teacher in his native Harrogate in Yorkshire. He was the only English professional footballer to be awarded the Victoria Cross for his bravery in the Great War. There were a few amateur players that also got the Victoria Cross, but he was the only professional. And there's a big link between sport and war. Sport was used in the early phase of the war as a propaganda tool to get men to enlist. Well-known sportsmen like Donald Simpson Bell were photographed, were reported on having joined the army to set an example to others to do the same. And extending that analogy between sport and war further, individual sportsmen's battalions were raised, football battalions were raised, and the whole idea of war as a game, as a game fought on a field like football, like rugby, like cricket, was something that you see very, very commonly used in the language of the press in the early phase of the war, perhaps in really throughout the war. Donald Simpson Bell was moved to this cemetery in the 1920s and later on in the walk will visit the spot where he was originally buried and we'll talk about that action when we get there. But again, when I come to this cemetery and walk along the rows of the graves here, I think not just of that generation of men who are forever perpetuated here in this silent city of the Great War, I think of my old pal Yves Foucault, a Frenchman who was an Imperial War Graves Commission and a Commonwealth War Graves Commission gardener. He joined the commission in 1947 after he did his national service in the French army and he served with them right through to the early 1990s. And I met him in my very first visits to the Somme in the early 1980s and he became a family friend. Almost him and his wife Christiane who died only last year, they became my adopted French grandparents in many ways. But from people like Eve. It wasn't the history of the Great War that I learned, although he had a unique knowledge of the ground in terms of that he spent a lot of time walking the battlefields and finding incredible artefacts from that period. But having worked as a commissioned gardener for all those years, he gave me an insight into the kind of work that they'd done over that period, how the cemeteries had changed and some of the stories connected to it. And this cemetery, Gordon Dump Cemetery, was his cemetery, for many, many years. In in those days, the cemeteries had individual gardeners. Some of the bigger ones would have more than one, and they would live locally, come on their mobilette, their scooter, or their bike, or in their de chevaux, their 2CV, and come and do their work, and then go home at the end of the day, and then come every day and do their work and tend the cemeteries. Now, groups of gardeners go around in vehicles and tend the cemeteries in, in a group of cemeteries. And we see, you know, in recent years, how incredible the work of the Commission is and and how good that standard of work remains. So although there are no longer individual gardeners as such for individual cemeteries, I think if Eve could come back today, and and 25 years nearly since Eve passed away, if he could stand here in this cemetery today, he would be as impressed with the work of the new gardeners reflecting on the type of work that he did himself when he was here but he he loved this cemetery he told me because he would come here all day now he could go home for lunch but he would get Christian to make him a casse crew a little sandwich to take with him to have 
during his lunch break, but he would then hop over the cemetery wall and go walking up and down Sausage Valley during the ploughing season to see what he could find. And he found an incredible amount of artefacts just in this part of the battlefield because if you think about it it was a good place to look because if there had been a dump here which obviously there had been with a name like Gordon Dump then there would be a lot of equipment left behind and as the plough gradually worked its way through the soil and turned those objects up they would come to the surface. Now this is long before conflict archaeology, battlefield archaeology. In many ways you could say that people like Eve were were the forerunners of that. They were doing surface-level archaeology by walking along and seeing what they could find. And although they couldn't always connect up the dots of that in the way that perhaps we can do today, I think it does give valuable insights into what happened and what is there on these different battlefields. And the disparate nature of individual collectors going out and walking the ground, rather than there being a collection of people doing it properly and it being recorded, shows, I think, really just how important modern conflict archaeology is but all of that aside i can't ever not think of eve spending so many summers so many winters in this cemetery doing his job tending these graves particularly in periods when there were very very few visitors from britain and the wider commonwealth for gardeners like eve he must have often wondered who would ever come here again because months and months he said could go past before he ever saw another visitor so it's a great testimony i think to the men and women like eve who worked for the commission during that period and who ensured that we still have places like this to visit today so from gordon dump cemetery we'll return via the grass path back up the slopes of sausage valley back to the main road and continue our walk from there. Following the grass path from the cemetery, we've come back up onto the main road that runs from La Boiselle to Contel Maison and we've turned left to go back towards the village. Now there is a map of the routes on the podcast website for you to follow and as we go back towards the village just on the edge of it there's a little track that goes off to the left and we follow that out into the fields now this is a a particular track that i enjoy walking it takes you across a bit of the somme battlefield that not many people go to where you've got some views of some familiar places from a different kind of angle because about halfway along this track as you get into the bulk of sausage valley you can stop and to your left is gordon dump cemetery that we've just come from and we're looking at the embankment that runs along that bit of the valley there that's where the track was that ran into the original entrance of the cemetery but if you look to your right you're looking towards the loch nagar crater which is very visible from here and then beyond that avoca valley and beyond that the rising ground going up towards the tara and Uzna hills on the outskirts of albea and on a clear day you'll see the spire of the basilica in albea with the golden virgin on the top the figure of mary with her outstretched arms holding the infant jesus now we're in a valley which before the battle of the somme would have had the final layers of german trench defenses here and then beyond sausage valley where the observation balloon was in that area would have been the german field guns protecting the front line positions here 
And at night, this would have been a route up towards the frontline area through the communication trenches for German soldiers occupying this part of the line. And for two long years before the Battle of the Somme, this was a familiar route for those troops, which for a big chunk of that period were Württemberg troops from the 26th Reserve Division. But the view towards the Lochnagar crater, you can see its importance on that part of the battlefield from here. That's where the German front line was located. And you can see as well the blowing of the mine there on the 1st of July, just taking out those very forward positions, left the next main line of defence pretty much untouched. And that's where a lot of the units that tried to advance through here on the first day of the Somme ran into trouble. And in the later fighting, the post-1st of July fighting, when the men of the 19th Western Division fought their way through this ground and up into the village of La Boiselle, it was in this direction that they were gradually advancing, moving nearer and nearer to Contal Maison, which is out of view at the far end of Sausage Valley, beyond Gordon Dump Cemetery and beyond an area which in the last decade or so has been planted with trees and has obscured that part of the battlefield. That's a new plantation of trees. That's an area of woodland that was not there at the time of the Great War. And as we stay on this track and come up over the rise, we've got good views to our right across the bit of the battlefield between La Boiselle and Fricourt, where the units of the 21st Division, the 17th Northern Division, made their assault on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. The 9th Battalion, King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry that I mentioned, who I've got a particular interest in, that is the ground over which they advance with their sister battalion, the 10th, going from the edge of Beckor Wood, which we can see in the distance there, up towards the ground between Fricourt and Contal Maison. And out in those fields, if you look carefully, you'll see a single tree out in the fields. And I often use this as a marker when I'm going round the Somme battlefields. That tree is on a track that runs up from Norfolk Cemetery up into the village of Freecourt. And when you stand there with a, a paper trench map or even better, the digital Great War linesman software on a tablet, and you can use that with GPS to orientate your position on the First World War landscape, you'll see that that tree is pretty much on the British front line for that particular point. And it's a good little marker, a good little beacon on the landscape here for you to familiarise yourself with the wider landscape around it and to orientate yourself at different points when you walk this ground. I've no idea why that single tree is there or how it survived over the four decades that I've been walking this ground. That was a walk that I did with my dad in 1982 from the outskirts of Albert through Becor and up to Freecourt and back and at that time I didn't know that the tree was on the British front line but in the years that followed as I researched it more I discovered that and it's always been a bit of a special place really because when you stand there you're standing at the jumping off point of so many different battalions on that fateful morning of the 1st of July 1916. Now a really good source to look at how the battlefields have changed over the years is aerial photographs and in the years following the Second World War the French government photographed France from the air in probably everywhere but in certainly a lot of key locations to work on new maps, new Institute Geographic National IGN maps of France and the majority, a big chunk of that aerial archive is online on the IGN 
websites and so you can go back and look through historic air photographs of different places so if you're interested in the d-day beaches it's quite an interesting thing to do to look at what the normandy coastline was like in the early 1950s for example but on the great war battlefields because it shows the battlefields then at a point where they were between four and five decades since the great war now in those years following the second world war there'd not been a lot of visitors not not been a lot of development really to these battlefields and it's amazing when you look at these air photographs just how much of a trace there still was of the great war and one of the things that i found when i looked at this area is that right up until seemingly the 1960s there was a very distinct complete german trench in the fields just to our left and right as we walk up this section of the track how it survived why it survived when we look at the 1950s air photographs it is very very clear and i've never met anyone who ever came up here and visited it but i by the look of it it would have been a case of just hopping into the trench and walking along eve never mentioned it so perhaps he didn't know it was up here but it was tucked away in this isolated location and perhaps that's how it was missed it looks to have been on a bit of pasture land so perhaps the farmer just kept his cows in there who knows but some point between the 60s and the 80s that trench was filled in and you can see on google maps some trace of it still but at ground level there's nothing at all one wonders what the archaeology of that would be if it could be excavated today and i think it makes me reflect on people often say to me you were so lucky to visit the battlefields 40 years ago so much of what you've seen has disappeared and we've never seen that but i could say the same you know when i spoke to people like john giles and john dray tony spagnoli lynn mcdonald rose coombs they had been visiting for 20 30 40 years before me and had seen so many things that had disappeared in their lifetime so this is how the battlefields i guess evolve and it's always a reminder i think to explore 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 get out there visit the ground walk these battlefields and see what remains because nothing is ever truly permanent the track comes out on the Freecore contour maison road Freecore across to our right contour maison to the left and as we look to our right down towards that village of Freecore, we're looking to the bit of ground which the ninth king's own yorkshire Line infantry which we mentioned a few times in this walk came to on the afternoon of the 1st of July and one of the officers that moved forward in the follow-up that had been part of the 10% the 10% of the battalion left behind that then moved forward to occupy the positions that had been won during the assault that day because as a battalion it had lost its commanding officer its second in command and all four company commanders but one of the officers that moved forward to uh, assist with what was left of the 9th Coilies was Basil Little Hart he was an officer of that battalion and this is one of the places where he served as an infantry officer in the Great War. He would go on to be quite a controversial historian of the First World War, and a lot of his views of how the war was fought and his criticism of, of how it was fought have now been challenged, if not discredited, in more recent research on the Great War. But we'll turn left here in the direction of Contal Maison, and the road drops down into a little wooded area, and on our left is a small military cemetery the cemeteries of the great war they are all so different so different these silent cities 
with the big ones, they give us an idea of the scale, the huge scale of this conflict. But I think it's the small ones that somehow you take a lot more from. They're somehow more personal. They are, as Martin Mirabuk calls them, comrade cemeteries, where men who had served together, fought together, died together, are often buried side by side. And this one is Peak Wood Cemetery. Peak Wood was a position marked on the maps. It was on the peak of a crest, a high point. It's possibly named after that. It could be named, as I've seen suggested elsewhere, after an individual whose name was Peak. Whatever, again, that is lost in the mists of time. But it was captured by British troops on the 5th of July 1916. As with the capture of Free Corps Village, the line moved forward and got nearer on this side of the battlefield towards the neighbouring village of Contal Maison. The cemetery was started not during the action for that village, but afterwards following the capture of Contal Maison, and the fighting moved beyond that area, beyond Mamet's Wood, towards High Wood. With the fighting there, men were brought back here for burial, and it became a frontline cemetery for units that served in that area of the battlefield. From July of 1916 and the fighting in July, August and September, in that ground around Highwood, but beyond that, and the cemetery remained open until February of 1917. The ground here was in German hands from March through to August of 1918, when, with the spring offensive, the Germans swept through here and captured the old Somme battlefields once more. And by the end of the conflict, the cemetery was one of those that was allocated to remain intact. There were no additional burials, and burials today total 87 British, 7 Australian, and 1 Canadian and there are six special memorials. The bulk of the men here are identified soldiers because they were brought by their comrades to be buried here rather than these were bodies collected off the battlefield to be buried and often they had nothing on them to say who they were. This is a very different kind of cemetery. So it's the archetype really of one of those comrade cemeteries. And there's a good connection with Yves Foucault who we mentioned in Gordon Dump because this was one of his cemeteries as well. If you think, he worked for the Commission from 1947 to the early 90s and he went through a number of different cemeteries in the Somme region. His last one for many years when I first knew him was Pozieres, for example, Pozieres British Cemetery. But he'd worked at uh, High Woods, at Corby and a number of other places. But this was one of his favourite places that he worked because it was a small cemetery and it was in quite a isolated location and around it in the fields again at lunchtime he would go off and he'd go walking and he'd find all sorts of things and when you stand here and look towards the village of Contal Maison across to your right there is a bit of ground there particularly in the winter months when the frost has caught the grass it's an area of untouched ground which is saturated with shell holes and you can see the kind of damage that shell fire had caused to that ground more than a century ago but Eve liked this cemetery because the men in it were all identified they were known soldiers and he felt he said a greater connection with them because of that he always thought it was such a great tragedy that so many soldiers from the great war were not identified and there were so many unknowns in the cemeteries where he'd worked and as a commissioned gardener and as a local collector and a well-known individual he was often called out to help with the recovery of bodies that were found on the battlefields many many years later but the story that he told me about this cemetery related to a particular grave. He noticed 
that in his first year working here, one day a taxi turned up from somewhere, perhaps Albert or Peron or Bapome, towns that all had railway stations then, only Albert does today, and which visitors to the battlefields came in through those routes. A taxi turned up, an elderly couple got out, they went and sat by a particular grave for quite some time, the taxi waited for them, and then eventually they got up and they went back to the taxi and the taxi drove away. About a year later, or probably exactly a year later, a taxi turned up again and the couple got out, spent some time at the grave and then departed. And this happened, he said, for several years thereafter. And this would have been in the 1950s, so about 40 years since the soldier that they were visiting had been killed. So this must have been his parents, who would have been very elderly by then. And then one day, one year, he suddenly realised that they hadn't come that year. What had happened to them? Had one or either of them or both of them faded away? And he said that he realised that the battlefields were changing then, that the generation who had lost sons in the Great War were going, were departing. And that as gardeners of the commission... It was their job to ensure that the memory of the men that they had come here to remember was perpetuated forevermore, was still there for future generations to come and see. Now, he couldn't remember the name of that officer. He knew roughly where the grave was, and I'm pretty sure it's Major Charles Edward Andrews of the 11th Battalion Highland Night Infantry who was killed on the 25th of October 1916. He was from Leeds, and Leeds to the Somme in the 1950s would certainly have been a doable journey. I mean, Eve only witnessed this during the years that he was here. Perhaps they came in the 1920s and 30s as well. But it's something that every time I pass this cemetery in a car or on a ledger coach, my mind's eye flashes to that story of Eve, and I picture an old taxi turning up and an elderly couple walking to the grave of their beloved son. And I think it says so much about the grief that surrounds the loss of the Great War and how ordinary people who never saw the battlefields during the war itself had to deal with the echoes of the loss sustained on those battlefields for the rest of their lives and how women in the 20th century in particular had to really come to terms with what that loss meant. The stories that Eve and gardeners, commissioned gardeners like him, told about these very kinds of things really is something that I wish much more of it had been recorded. I feel so fortunate that I was able to spend so much time with Eve over the years and hear his stories and that he was keen to tell them because they are as much part of the history of these places, of the Great War, as the stories of bombs and bayonets and battles. Leaving the cemetery, we continue down the hill towards Contel Maison. The village is on a slight rise ahead of us now, and there's a track going off to the left, which we'll walk down to a little marker stone we can see out in the fields. This is the Dodgson Memorial. This commemorates Francis Dodgson, who was born in 1889 he was a kinsman of Charles Dodgson, who was Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice in Wonderland. He was known as Toby to his family, educated at Marlborough and Trinity College, Cambridge. He was killed in the attack on Contal Maison, 
serving with the Greenhows, the Yorkshire Regiment, on the 10th of July 1916, advancing from Bailiff Wood, which we can see across to our left, towards the edge of the village. This is where he was originally buried. Now, when the war ended, families were not entirely sure what would happen to graves like this, so his mother purchased the ground on which her son was buried to make a permanent memorial and she brought a stonemason from uh, I think Amiens it was here to place this memorial that we see today on his grave. With the establishment of the Imperial War Graves Commission and the permanent cemeteries the commission of course wanted the removal of individual burials like this to be placed into larger cemeteries because the permanent maintenance of sites like this would be very difficult indeed. And in fact, this ground was searched. When we look at the Commission's records for Francis Dodgson on the Commission's database, we see this ground was searched in December 1928, and what was initially an unidentified officer of the Green Howards, which using the artefacts that was found with the body, identified him as Francis Dodgson, that was then moved to Sayre Road Number 2 Cemetery, where his grave is today. But the family kept the memorial to him here, which when the body was found, I think it was about 8-10 feet away from where the actual monument is located, but the family wanted that kept here, and it remains as one of those permanent private memorials to individuals who fell on the battlefields. And we will do a complete podcast on these private memorials further down the line in this season. Again, what we see with these private memorials is families dealing with grief, a body has been found in this case. He wasn't missing. This is seen as his field grave. But they were not waiting for the government to tell them what to do about graves like this. They stepped in and they made their commemoration. And I think if it makes you wonder that if the government had not decided to pay for the commemoration of the dead of the Great War, what would we see on this landscape more than a century later? Would those from privileged and wealthy and connected families have memorials like this and would Private Brown from the back streets of Manchester there would be nothing no trace of him just like there's no trace of the ordinary soldiers who fell in the Battle of Waterloo what the cemeteries what the silent cities have done is immortalize an entire generation really and that is their impact that is their power on the landscape today so leaving Dodson's memorial will return along the track to the road we're following the route of the attack of his battalion, the neighbouring battalion of the Greenhowards, the Yorkshire Regiment, into the village of Contour-Maison on the 10th of July when it was captured, and we'll follow it up into the village. When we come into the edge of the village, there's a road off to our right, and we'll take that, and that'll lead us to our final part of this walk. The village of Contour-Maison was attacked by the 9th and 10th Battalions of the Yorkshire Regiment, the Green Howards, on the 10th of July 1916. A village that should have been taken on the very first day of the Battle of the Somme took nearly two weeks to be finally captured. And this was symbolic, really, of how the fight in this area of the Somme battlefields progressed over the course of those weeks following the disastrous 1st of July. It was an important village in the German positions in this sector. There was a chateau in Contalmaison that was used as a headquarters by the Germans. They also had a dressing station there, and it's quite likely that there was a German cemetery in this village. Many of the villages 
behind the German lines on the Somme had cemeteries in them, just like the villages behind the British line on the Somme had cemeteries in them as well, for exactly the same reasons. Places to bury your comrades when they were killed in the frontline area, and ones that were close to medical units where men died of their wounds, they would be buried there. With the valleys that surrounded the village, that was a good place for German artillery, and in the years of walking this ground around Contalmaison, I found a lot of surface trace of that with bits of German artillery, shell cases, bits of the wicker baskets that the shells came up in, and other artefacts really indicating that German artillery had been in possession of that ground, using that ground at some point. Completely destroyed in the 1916 battles, there is a little stub of the chateau left close to Contalmaison Chateau Cemetery, the British cemetery that's on the far side of the village from where we are at the moment. But the original village of Contalmaison was destroyed, if not in 1916, certainly in the battles that passed through here in 1918. So like all of the Somme villages, we're looking at a part of what was once the Zone Rouge, the Red Zone, and the village was reconstructed in the early 1920s. We've come out of the edge of the village down what feels like a bit of a sunken lane surrounded by trees with an embankment on the left-hand side. And here is a, a relatively new memorial to Donald Simpson Bell, whose grave we saw in Gordon Dump earlier on in this walk. This is where he was killed. His men from the Green Howards fought their way up here and his bombing section fought their way through the German positions into a redoubt, a German circular-shaped defensive position that occupied this ground, and it was in the capture of that redoubt that Bell was killed, and it was named after him. It became known as Bell's Redoubt. When you look at the trench maps of the period, you see it named as such, and it was also the site where he was buried. So like a warrior of old, he was buried on the ground that he captured. His grave was then moved from here in the 1920s to Gordon Dump Cemetery and nothing remained on this site for many, many years that followed. Then in the year 2000, the Green Howards Association and the Professional Footballers Association got together and they erected the memorial that we see here now. And this has a, a depiction of the cross that once stood here bearing Bell's name on the site of the Bell's Redoubt and gives information about Donald Simpson Bell that professional footballer turned soldier former teacher at Harrogate in Yorkshire who was killed on this spot in July 1916. Contel Maison is a village connected with footballers in the Great War because Donald Simpson Bell was originally buried here on the far side of the village I mentioned it earlier is the Contel Maison Chateau Cemetery and buried in there is William Henry Short also of the Green Howards he was killed in action after the capture of Contalmaison on the 6th of August 1916. He was originally from Eston in Middlesbrough, and before the war he'd worked as a steel worker there. And he was an amateur footballer, not a professional, but he played for local teams like Grangetown, Albion, Saltburn and Lazenby United. So this small village on the Somme had connections to two men who were part of that beautiful game and football the connection to football and footballers who served in the great war is something that brings many many people to these battlefields year after year continuing along the road from bell's memorial we come to a bend in the road and the ground drops away towards the village of mametz in the far distance and we can see 
the trees of Mamet's Wood ahead of us. We covered the fighting there involving the Welsh troops in July 1916 in a previous podcast. But we've come to the communal cemetery now. Now, for many, many years, it wasn't apparent that there was anything of Great War connection in here, unless you'd looked at Rose Coombs before Endeavour's Fade Guide, or you knew. But now, thanks to members of the Western Front Association, there are signs indicating that there is a battalion memorial to the 12th Battalion, the Manchester Regiment, in the communal cemetery. So we'll open the gate and go on in, and it's a typical French civil cemetery, but at the back of it is a white column and now an information panel and marker stone commemorating the men of the 12th Manchesters. The 12th Battalion, the Manchester Regiment, had been raised at Ashton-under-Line in 1914 and it gone across to France in July 1915, served first at Ypres and then came down to take part in the Battle of the Somme. This memorial commemorates the battalion's first major action of the Great War on the 7th of July 1916 in their attack on the ground here between Contal Maison and Mamet's Wood. The memorial stands in fact on one of their objectives for the battle that day, a battle that cost them over 500 casualties killed, wounded and missing. In the whole war the 12th Battalion lost just over a thousand men killed in action, died of wounds, died on active service and that's not untypical for an infantry battalion that served for three or four years on the Western Front. Some suffered far more than that, but this is not an untypical kind of figure. And when we see the scale of loss, we see the impact that even just one battalion could have on an area of Great Britain. The memorial that we see today was unveiled in August 1929, and it replaced an earlier oak cross that commemorated the battalion, similar to that cross that commemorated the Lancashire Fusilier lads that was once in Gordon Dump Cemetery. There were lots of these individual crosses right along the Western Front battlefields where the British Army had fought. Many of them were taken back to Britain at the end of the war or just after the war to regimental depots or churches, and some survive in different locations today. Very few of them were turned into permanent memorials here on the battlefields and this is an example of that again with a good and strong old comrades association the money had been raised to make this memorial permanent and thanks to the members of the western front association the site of the memorial is now permanently indicated and there's an information panel here explaining the history behind it when you stand here alongside the memorial and peer over the hedge down towards the slope that leads to the edge of Mamet's Wood. We're looking at the grounds where this battalion and so many fought during the Battle of the Somme. Memorials like this commemorate the dead, they commemorate the fallen, the sacrifice, but they commemorate much more than that. This was a way for the veterans of the 12th Manchesters and the families of those who had fought here to place a beacon on the battlefields a place, a marker of ownership. This was ground that they had taken. This was ground that they had won at the blood of their comrades, their own blood, perhaps, if they'd been wounded here. It was just a corner of the Western Front, an inconsequential field in northern France. But for them, the sacrifice had given it greater meaning. 
for them and so many others like them in so many different units that passed this way in 1916. Here the criss-cross paths of the Great War met at one point. And while the veterans and the families of the fallen have now faded away, the memorial still stands. Around it, its shadows echo the events of more than a century ago. Shadows that fall across this part of the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcore. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.